Good morning and welcome to The Skinny for Friday, January 5th. I'm Mitch Perry, the senior political reporter for the Florida Phoenix, and I'm joined today by my two co-hosts, freelance reporter Ben Montgomery and creative loafing editor-in-chief Ray Roa. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning, good morning Mitch. Mitch. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So later on the show, we're going to be talking about low-performing schools in the Hillsborough County School District. A report from the State Department of Education released last month showed that the district had more D and F graded schools than any other district in the state. But a school board member says that report fails to mention certain realities. We'll hear later from school board member Lynn Grader. Lynn Gray later in the show. But first, in studio right now with us is Democratic State Representative uh, Lindsey Cross, who represents St. Petersburg and other parts of Pinellas County. Uh, she represents District 60 in the Florida House, and she'll be going to Tallahassee next week when the session begins for 2024. Representative Cross, thanks for coming into the studio this morning. You're welcome. It's great to be here. All right. Let's get into it. So um, for some of our listeners who aren't familiar with Lindsey Cross, let's tell some people about you. Uh, Midwestern native, uh, environmental scientist who's lived in St. Pete for over 20 years, I think, at this point now. That's right. Uh, And I know, I think a couple years ago, before you won last fall um, or a year ago or 2022 now, uh, you ran, I think, for state senate, right, against Jeff Brandis a few years ago? Yes. Right, right. So um, Lindsey Cross, talk to us about about. I know environmental science. So where did that get into? Where did you get into like wanting to like study that and do that as a profession right now? So I'm one of those rare individuals who knew from a young age what I wanted to do. Um, Actually, since middle school, I knew I wanted to be involved in protecting our environment. My mom was a teacher. Actually, both of my parents were public school educators. And my mom was doing a session on Earth Day one of those anniversaries with her students came home and told my brother Adam and I kind of what that was all about. And we were learning about the destruction of the Amazon rainforest. And, you know, I'd always loved being outdoors, loved animals. And, you know, suddenly I saw that there was a different career path for me Mm. in environmental protection. And since that time, I've just really been laser focused on that and looking at the connection between humans and our environment and how we can positively or negatively impact our environment. Well, we're going to talk about some of the bills that you proposed for the upcoming session, but let's talk about last year was your first year in Tallahassee. It was a real wild session. What was it like for you as a freshman legislator? So there's a, there's a lot to learn in your freshman year. Um, there's a lot of procedural things that you don't understand until you've experienced them. Um, things as simple as what happens when your bill gets referenced to a committee and understanding the process of making appointments with that chair to talk about what your bill really does and showing support from your caucus and from both sides of the aisle on that. And there's procedures that go along with that that, you know, they'll give you a brief rundown of that in a couple hour um, meeting at the beginning of session. But, you know, you have to experience it the first time to understand the timing of some of those things and how important it is to um, to generate support within your own members for bills just to get them on a committee agenda to have the opportunity to go before the public and have that discussion. And I've noticed both last year and this year, you have a lot of bills that you're co-sponsoring with Republicans, which seems to me makes sense because Democrats are in a super minority in both chambers. And if you do want to get something passed, which of course is why you're there, um, that can only help the cause. Sure. You know, I think as Democrats, we have to work harder and we have to work um, 
very smartly. And so having Republican co-sponsors or Senate sponsors is something that I'm really focused on to show that there's bipartisan support. You know, the bills that I'm sponsoring, I feel are bipartisan, common sense things. And so it only makes sense that I'm reaching across the aisle to get that support. Let's talk about some of those. One of them that you found that uh, I think we saw a press release on this yesterday, I think, was this bill with uh, Miami-Dade Republican Anna Maria Rodriguez in the Senate that would create a task force to develop a state-level carbon sequestration program. Now, this is about combating climate change uh, in a way. It's to turn, I believe, because uh, I was w- wanting to learn more about carbon sequestration, it's to turn like nat- natural climate solutions to harness the, the, our ecosystems to capture and store greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide, methane. Um, talk to us about this bill. Absolutely. So, you know, as we're looking at ways to combat our climate crisis, I think one of the most important things we can do is to protect and restore our existing natural areas and maintain our working landscapes, whether that's timber, ranching, aquaculture, oyster farming. Those are really important things. We have um, funding mechanisms and policies for conservation, things like the Florida Forever Program and the Rural and Family Lands. But I think we need to be offering more alternatives for for farmers, for people people in the aquaculture field and for um, landowners to incentivize them to maintain their natural areas, to put money into restoring and enhancing the capacity of those areas to provide so many of the ecosystem benefits they do, whether that's storing and filtering water or storing carbon from the atmosphere. We're talking talking to State Representative Lindsey Cross here in on the Skitty here in WMNF. We have her till the bottom of the hour, so if you'd like to participate in this conversation, let's open the phones, 813-239-9663. You can also email us at d, uh, dj at wmnf.org. Uh, Representative Cross, you have an op-ed in the Tampa Bay Times today uh, that talks about Something I was going to ask you about already, which is that this legislation that was slipped into the state budget last year that prevents local governments from amending or adopting fertilizer ordinances for a full year. It was called, it also called for the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agriculture mm-hmm. Sciences to study the effectiveness of these ordinances and present its results by the end of this calendar year, 2024. What are your concerns about this? So urban fertilizer ordinances are something that have been adopted by a lot of municipalities across the state. Um, I was working at the Tampa Bay Estuary Program in the, um, I was there for 14 years and around 2009, following the adoption of an ordinance in Sarasota County, um, our management, our policy board asked us to look at whether something would be um, would be appropriate for the Tampa Bay area because we know that Nitrogen and phosphorus pollution is what is impairing our Tampa Bay um, and so many of our water bodies. And a significant source of that is fertilizer that's applied to residential lawns and landscapes. And so it was a... um, you know, a very collaborative process that we went through with stakeholders, with the lawn care industry, with scientists, and with the public to come up with a model ordinance. We then brought that to our policy board, and um, those board members were able to adopt that. And Pinellas County adopted one of the most um, proactive ordinances that went into effect in January of 2010. As part of that, it prevents uh, the use of fertilizer that contains nitrogen and phosphorus during the rainy season, which is roughly June 1st through September 30th. And the rationale behind that is that if you're applying fertilizer right before we're going to have a heavy rainstorm or a hurricane, um, 
you know, that fertilizer is not going to seep into the ground and fertilize the lawn. It's actually going to get into our water bodies and fertilize algae, which we don't want happening there. And so this is a very cost-effective tool that local municipalities have. There are so many things that they're required to do under their statewide municipal stormwater permits, um, as well as maintaining wastewater treatment plants and looking at the um, the influence of septic systems. So by not applying fertilizer during that time, we're preventing it from getting into our water bodies. And studies from the DEP have shown that it's anywhere between 1900 and about $3,800 per pound of nitrogen to remove that once it's in our water bodies. So it's a very expensive problem. And so why not prevent that pollution from happening in the first place. So the purpose of that op-ed, which I wrote with Mayor Woody Brown from the city of Largo, who is a a close friend of mine and and someone who I deeply respect, um, was just showing how important it is that local municipalities maintain the ability to make those local decisions because they're the ones that are on the front line of having to um, respond when there's water quality crisis, making sure that the water coming off of the streets into the stormwater systems is clean. And so let's maintain the ability of those local governments to have those tools. Right, right. Again, if you're just tuning in right now, we're speaking with uh, State Representative Lindsey Cross, a Democrat from Pinellas County. The legislative session begins next Tuesday in Tallahassee. Okay, let's talk about Governor Ron DeSantis in terms of the environment. Um, I know that he talked, you know, some would say a good game when he, not only when he was campaigning, but when he actually got into office. His first hundred days were, you know, saw some great uh, uh, environmental policies put in place. Uh, And water policy was one that he really talked a lot about. And he and his administration still maintains they're doing stuff in terms of the Everglades, for example. But I know folks in the environmental community don't agree. What's What's your thoughts there? So I do think it's it's kind of a mixed bag there. When it comes to the Everglades, he has been a leader. Um, the state, as well as the federal government, has been investing more in Everglades restoration than they ever have before. And so that's something to be celebrated. Um, I also had high hopes when he formed the Blue-Green Algae Task Force at the beginning of his first term. However, it was really disappointing when we saw a lack of action on the recommendations from the Blue Green Algae Task Force. I actually sponsored a bill last year with Senator Stewart that would implement some more of those recommendations, including having a statewide septic inspection program. We've got over 3 million septic systems in our state and we don't really have a handle on um, how many of those are performing up to the level that they're supposed to, but we know that particularly in more rural areas, it's a significant problem. Um, And so we haven't seen some of the follow through in there. Um, There's places where he's invested money into water quality and to conservation. I know he's recommended about $330 million this year. Um, But when you look at conservation this year, you know, we have a, a smaller budget for Florida Forever and rural and family lands than I believe we should. Historically, we invested $300 million a year. Um, Now with a budget of over $100 billion, when we're investing about 100 or $200 million, that's less than like 0.1%. And so it's not sufficient to keep up with the pace of development we have in the state and the existing water quality problems that we already have. I know a lot of Democrats file bills every year trying to deal with the issue of climate change. The administration does talk a lot about uh, resiliency, uh, sea level rise specifically. 
but I, I know others would think that the state is not doing nearly enough and it's the local communities are trying to do more. We've seen Pinellas is among, I think there's 10 or 12 counties now that have enacted proposals to try to get to, you know, zero out in terms of their emissions, got to go green by, you know, 2050 or mm-hmm. what have you. Like, you know, like the Joe Biden administration is as well. Where, where, where are we at? Are you concerned about where we're, how we're dealing with the issue of climate change here in the state of Florida? Sure. I, you know, the state needs to be adopting more aggressive and, and actually setting some renewable energy targets. We're really kind of going in the opposite direction where instead of being proactive and setting some goals as a state, we're actually preempting those local governments from making those choices by um, making it unallowable to restrict certain fuel choices. So as a state, we certainly need to be doing more. Uh, The Resilient Florida Grant Program is a great opportunity for us to be more invested in that. I'd actually like to see more funding in that because it is something that our local communities have been taking advantage of. Um, Just seeing the the stronger storms and hurricanes that we're experiencing, you know, things are only going to get worse and we need to be taking action. You know, we needed to be taking action decades ago and and so we cannot kick this can down the road any longer. Let's move on to talking about some other issues here while we've got you here. Uh, again, we're speaking with uh, State Representative Lindsey Cross from House District 60 in, let's see, that's St. Petersburg, Wheelman, uh, Pinellas Park. That's it. All right, great. Um, so uh, big news today for in the abortion issue here in Florida were the, the folks who are trying to get a ballot measure on the on the ballot in November 2024, say they have the sufficient signatures or likely more than sufficient signatures because you always need to get more than the, what is it, 891,000 roughly that need to be uh, qualified signatures to get on the ballot about um, changing the law here, basically. We have currently a 15-week ban on abortion, uh, ban after 15 weeks of abortion. It may go to six weeks after the Supreme Court rules on the 15-week law any time now. Uh, so, this, of course, if this has to go get vetted by the Florida Supreme Court as well in terms of its language before it gets on the ballot, uh, do you, if it does get on the ballot, which, you know, we don't know if it will yet, it needs to get 60% support. We have seen in red states across the country these abortion rights measures be successful. Do you have any doubt that this measure would not be successful if it gets on the ballot this November? If this, if this gets on the ballot in November, which I sincerely hope that it does, um, I believe that will pass because Floridians and Americans, this is an issue that the majority of us agree on, that women should have the choice to make their own health care decisions. And people feel very strongly about it. Were you shocked? Well, not shocked, but well, I don't know if you were shocked about anything that happened in Tallahassee last year, <laughs> but I'm um, surprised uh, about the six-week ban because Ron DeSantis really never came out too strong one way or the other about it. Uh he, now he's defending it uh, all the time. Now he's criticizing Donald Trump, who actually Donald Trump has said that he thinks that might be going too far. Uh, but uh, I mean, a state like Florida, which, you know, obviously was a swing state until recently. But this is a very, very conservative law, a six week ban if it goes into effect. It's it's a very aggressive ban. And, you know, when the governor signed this law, I think it was on a Friday night, you know, late evening, no fanfare. I think that shows that even he knows it's unpopular and it's something that, you know, hopefully the voters will hold all of our elected officials to task for that. Yeah, it was about 11 o'clock at night that he signed it and sent the photo out. Um, 
I know we talked before we went on the air. You did not see the town hall on CNN, which I don't know. Ray, Ben, you guys see that last night? Um, I gave up on CNN. <laughs> yeah. Oh, on CNN, you gave up. No, 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 no I'm just kidding. I, I gave up. I'm taking a break from the news. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, I get it. I'm holding on. I'm holding on, resolution. man. Yeah. I know. Whenever I talk about on this show, even did anybody see DeSantis last night? Anything as the campaign rolls on? No, nobody saw it. Um, well, anyway, one of the things he did talk about, there, there was this tragic shooting in uh, Iowa yesterday. Uh, and so that was the first question asked in the debate and or the town hall excuse me and um so he was asked his comments about you know gun issue you know issues of gun safety and the like and he pivoted quickly to talking about how when he got elected in 2018 he of course the legislature the gop controlled legislature had passed that big uh, gun safety gun control law in March of 2018 after Parkland, right? Uh, but now there's lawmakers, uh, you may have seen this uh, rep across where they're trying to kind of repeal some provisions of that. And that one of them includes removing the three-day waiting period to purchase a firearm. DeSantis said there should be no uh, wait at all yes, last night. So he's going to be backing this as this bill goes through the session, which means that leadership will be behind it, surely. And with the numbers they have, I don't know. It looks like it might, it might get through. Yeah, it's it's frightening. You know, we already rolled back some of the provisions in the um, in the in the Parkland bill that was passed in 2018, and that was one of the most difficult days on the House floor. Is being with two elected officials who had represented Parkland, including Representative Hunchowski, who was the mayor of Parkland at that time, and family members from that community who were sitting in the chamber. And hearing the discussions and all of us in tears talking about our personal experiences. And, you know, I shared that I was living near Columbine when I was a student at uh, Colorado State University when we saw the first mass shooting. 1999. In in the U.S. And how deeply that affected me. And hearing people's personal stories about that and then having all those green buttons get pushed and rolling back those common sense provisions and now to see that they're trying to take it another step forward. Um, well, I, I will say that that passed in the, the House. I believe that was to um, uh, lower the age from 21 to 18 yep. to buy a long gun. But the Senate never had a, a, a companion right. of that. So it did not... So we haven't really seen any repeal, but this one seems like it does. It's going to. I think there's been bills in both chambers that have already been filed for this one. So, yeah. You talk about the uh, emotion on the House floor for votes like that, and and uh, I want to ask you a little bit on, on those lines. And uh, by the way, I haven't given up completely on news, and it's inspiring to see. Uh, you know, we're on the radio; you can't see the stack of papers that Representative Cross is is reading through, and, and it's nice to see your elected officials. Just doing the work in front of you. It's 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 great. So that can't be understated. But talking about these emotions, you've filed these bipartisan bills that you have coming up. Uh, very clear platform. Um, I'm curious about your mindset and whether or not like the minutia of political discourse, this supermajority in Tallahassee, um, the auspice of a uh, DeSantis flame out in this primary gives you any level of anxiety as you uh, kind of steel yourself to spend a really intense two months in Tallahassee trying to advance some of this legislation that you have in front of you? Well, I'll say it's not a job for the faint of heart. You know, Mm. I'm an optimist and I have high hopes. Um, I'm really passionate about the things that I'm working on. I have over $10 million of appropriation requests that I'm um, carrying this year as well. Things that I care deeply about that I think will benefit my community and our state. Um, 
it is challenging to go up there knowing that you have the best intentions and the things that you're working for are clearly in the best interest of Floridians and then see the type of legislation that's coming before you. Um, I remember during the discussion on the six-week abortion ban, speakers had driven from all across the state from as far as you know Monroe County to drive up and ultimately be given a minute or less at the dais to talk about these things and then have um, these bills pass along party line. And so that can be very discouraging because these are not um, these are not issues that are, are just policies. These are things that affect people deeply and personally. And so it can be very challenging um, as as lawmakers and elected leaders I think we have to continually look at, um, you know, look forward into how we can continue to push things that are in the best interest of, of our state and our communities. But it is very challenging. Can we get in the weeds a little bit on carbon sequestration? Um, <laughs> give us the overview on that, if you could, and tell us how it might benefit uh, ultimately. Like, what, is, what does it look like, let's say, if, if, if you get a green light, uh, what does it look like five years down the road? Are you, uh, is the state awarding uh, people in ranches and, and big, uh, uh, big landowners in Central Florida money for storing our carbon? Is that the idea? So the idea is, yes, that this could be an additional tool that landowners and people in the conservation community could have to accelerate the amount of carbon that's being stored. Um, we know that some of our aquatic ecosystems, like our seagrasses and our mangroves, are particularly effective at storing carbon from the atmosphere. So it's held in their roots, in the soil. And so it's kind of... Um, additive that you have this carbon that's being stored, but when you remove those habitats from production, so if you destroy a mangrove They become a neighborhood. Area, um, if it becomes a neighborhood, yeah. If you take a timber plantation and take it out of that production and build a subdivision, you're not only losing the amount of storage, the carbon that was being stored there, but now you have this additional source of carbon and other pollutants because of the changes in land use. So the idea is to help them financially so they might continue to protect that undisturbed wild Florida into the foreseeable future. Absolutely. Yeah. I've talked to a number of ranchers who are really enthusiastic about this program, uh, including Jack Strickland at Blackbeard Ranch. Yeah. Um, is this working in any other state? Do we know of other examples where uh, there's been a path forward? So Virginia passed a similar bill a couple of years ago, and I'm actually the state lead for the National Caucus of Environmental Legislators. Mm. And so um, this is something that had always been interesting to me, but I actually saw this policy, um, you know, through my work with the NCEL and worked with someone in the environmental community to actually draft the language. And so we're kind of modeling it after the Commonwealth of Virginia, but going going a little bit further than they have gone. Hmm. Wanted to make sure here, we've got uh, Representative Wincy Cross here from Pinellas County on for a few more minutes here. A couple questions I definitely want to get in before we let you go here. Um, you are a state legislator, but I and I don't think you ever thought maybe, you know, when you're running for office that you're going to talk about world issues, international issues. But you were kind of confronted with it. The legislature was a couple months ago uh, when uh, you had a special session in November to deal with uh, showing support for Israel after the Hamas attack uh 
back in October 7th. There was also a resolution sponsored by one of your colleagues in the House, uh, Angie Nixon, calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, that was voted down. Only one other person voted for her. Um, I wanted to just get your thoughts about that because uh, there was intense rhetoric employed against Representative Nixon by not only Republicans, but some Democrats, too, who thought it was just outrageous that she was bringing this up. Um, Randy Fine said, if you vote for this, you're an anti-Semite. Um, you know, Representative Nixon said, you know, she said, quote, we are at 10,000 dead Palestinians at the time. How many will, more will be enough? And somebody supposedly said uh, all of them. Right. It was a really intense moment in the chamber there. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Just in terms of like what it was that experience like and to be dealing with that. It, it is an intense moment. And, and this is a, you know, a situation where lives are being lost on, on both sides. Um, I've been supportive of Israel and I believe that Israel should be able to defend itself, uh, herself. Um, it is still a challenging situation there. Yeah. And, you know, to to be confronted with that and, and have to make a decision, press a button, yes or no, when there's so many nuances in particularly uh, world conflicts is is difficult. Right, right. Another question, I'm, I'm writing a story about this as we get into the session next week, and that is um, how much lawmakers make up there in Tallahassee? Uh, it's less than $30,000. And there is, you know, uh, frankly, it, it really limits, I think, who could run for office because not only um, you got to have another job uh, and, and or you got to have a very flexible employer, right, who can allow you to go, so 60 days coming up, but also, as you know, we all know, committee weeks. I think you've had six committee weeks over the last three months. Um, I'm curious. I mean, I'd like to get your thoughts about this. And I don't, you know, I think some, I, I talked to a Republican, Spencer Roach, about this. And he's in the story that will be coming out. And he says that uh, although most lawmakers say, you know, they're, they're not supportive of it because, you know, obviously it's maybe not good optics, but many of them do support this. And I know you're running for re-election, so I don't want to put you in a, uh, on the spot there, but... The fact is also, uh, Rep. Cross, Cross is that your colleagues, half of them are millionaires. Uh, literally, 50, I believe it's 22 of the 40 senators in Tallahassee uh, and roughly half of the 120 members of the House. So obviously, they don't really care or need it to make more than 29490 whatever it is. <laughs> but um, what, what's your thought about that? Not that I'm, you know— you know, I'd like to see if you, you think people should make make more money uh, in the legislature. But the idea that it's a quote unquote citizens legislature, when in fact it kind of limits what citizens can run. I think it's appropriate for us to to look at whether we should expand um, the length of time that we're up in Tallahassee, and with that commensurate with that the the salary. You know, it if you do it well, it's a full time job, and to look at it just as a part time job. You know, I appreciate that people bring their professional backgrounds and their experience, but to run um, a state of 22 million people and to do it effectively. You know, I think there's grounds to say that we should be up there more, have additional time to have thoughtful debate, more time for public and citizen engagement in the process, and look at it more as a full-time job. You know, I think that's appropriate. Right. Like other states do have that. Uh, states, important states like California, like New York. Some would say Florida is as important, a big a state as those other places. They do think it's worth going much more than two months a year. Uh, and uh, and can I ask what's your what's your employer? What, what do you do when you're not in the legislature in terms of your employment? Sure. I'm an environmental scientist. Right. I work as a consultant. Okay. Yeah. And so 
I guess a consultant, you do have the flexibility uh, as opposed to maybe others. I remember I had Rick Kreisman on this actually here in WMF way back when, when he was in the legislature. And I remember him telling me he was switching law firms because as the law firm he was at the time said, we can't, we can't deal with you like not being around all often, you know? And so he had, you know, so it, it just, it, I think it's really interesting. And there's not maybe a lot of sympathy for politicians in terms of uh, how much money they make or what not. But I think in the situation where, some people say, you know, you get what you pay for or don't get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. And, and it is interesting to hear your thoughts about expanding that because I, I did a story about that last year as well because there's definitely thoughts about that. But unless you have a committee, and I think actually Bruce Antone from Orange County has a bill that he's filed. I think Lori Berman in the Senate. Okay. Uh, we'll see if it you know goes anywhere. But the, all his bill says is to have a committee of like nine members uh, assigned by the Senate president, House Speaker, the governor, to look at this issue. That's all it's asking to do. It's not even saying he's going to raise a penny of anybody's salary. Yeah. All right. I think, okay, folks, I think that's going to be, uh, anybody, last questions for Ben or... I, I don't know if Representative Cross is going to stick around um, or, or not. I don't know if it's a peaceful place to read over uh, that very serious <laughs> legislation you have um, in front of you, but uh, we really love to having you on. Thank you so much. Thank yes. you. Thank you for all your hard work. Again, it's, this, I'm sorry, Lindsay, we, go ahead, Lindsay. I, I was just going to add one funny comment. I was listening on Tuesday evening and as, as I was coming back from the field and there was a question about the female artist who was singing on a song with, I don't know, a, a male artist. And I knew that it was Taylor Swift. I called into the studio and I was the first <laughs> one, but I couldn't win the tickets because I'll be up in Tallahassee next week. But last week, it was the first time I've ever won something over the radio from WMNF. And it's from knowing that it was Taylor's. I guess I am now. Oh, see, they say we don't break news anymore. and We are doing it right now. Uh, Pinellas County State House Representative Lindsey Cross, thank you so much for joining us here on The Skinny. We look forward to following what you're going to be doing the next two months up in Tallahassee. Thank you. It's been great. All Thank right. you so much. And uh, moving on here uh, to our next guest, uh, moving from Tallahassee back here to Hillsborough County. Um, data released last month by the Florida Department of Education shows that the Hillsborough County School District has more D and F graded schools than any other district in the state. Uh, the Tampa Bay Times noted that the Hillsborough County received D's or F's for 32 of its schools, not including privately managed charters. But our next guest says that reporting ignored some important realities. Um, Lynn Gray um, has spent decades instructing elementary, middle, and high school students in public, private, and homeschooling organizations. Uh, she has eight years of service on the dais there. She is the senior most member of the Hillsborough County School Board. Miss Gray, thank you for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, I guess it's good afternoon. Almost. It is. It is uh, there. Uh, not yet in Florida. We're, 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 we're here there, so still shaking off uh, last night. So um, I should probably disclose that while I was never a student of Miss Gray's, um, I did attend high school with her son. Uh, Thomas and I did know Miss Gray to be uh, a positive person in, in the lives of the, of the boys at the high school that I was at uh, via her running. She was always running, and <laughs> Thomas was a, a very gifted cross country athlete as well. So I'll just say that I don't think there's any conflict, but I do know Miss Gray from a long time ago. Miss um, Gray, t- tell me what was your initial reaction uh, to the data released by the state last month? Well, <clears throat> you know, if I were just looking at it through the lens of a parent. Um, I would just be very disappointed, and I would be concerned. Um, but when you know the background and the, the reason, reasoning of what's going on, you either can read that uh, article, which was very well written, 
Um, and you can just say, okay, well, we've got a long way to go, and we do. And that conversation needs to be continued by uh, and with our parents and our community leaders and our school board and our superintendent. However, um, there's a bigger uh, there's a bigger reality going on, um, Ray, whether it be with Hillsborough County Public Schools, uh, Pinellas, Pasco, Duval, um, every school site and every school system, and I've taught in the um, charter world, I taught in the private school world, I taught in the public school world. Um, <clears throat> there are three continuing um, prerequisite, prerequisites for students to, to not only learn academically, but to thrive. When one of them is missing, then there's going to be, uh, we're, right now we're under uh, looking at scores, it will be tremendously impacted. So the three components that I mentioned, you have to have an effective teacher in front of you. And uh, every one of us know that we nationwide, we, we are suffering a shortage. Uh, right now we're at 383 instructional positions. Um, secondly, you ha the student has to be in school. Um, <clears throat> chronic absenteeism is also nationwide, but we're being hit hard. Over 10% of our students are just simply not showing up in school. And I, I would say the biggest factor since I began and I started teaching in the 70s, um, and I know that's a long way away uh, ago, but the biggest factor evolving and not getting any better is the students coming to the kindergarten, first grade, and they have no uh, or little phonetic uh, understanding of uh, the language. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm supporting this with data. For example, I brought out in the opt-ed that we are over 24,000 immigrants right now. We are at 13% of our students are English language learners, meaning they come to us without the English language. Um, I taught at East Bay migrants. We have over, oh, I think uh, 12, uh, let's see, yeah, 2,000 migrants up at this time. This is all recent data. And uh, that in itself is a demographic, very tough to crack and to move forward. So fast forward, we're in the land of testing. And those affective domains, um, oh, he tries really hard. He's, rep he's done all his reports on time. He's a goal setter. He or she, uh, he or she plays sports. You know, all those, what we would think makes a good student uh, are levied now with a test score. Mm. And, and I know you might want to just bring in some more questions, but mm. when you have the confines of a test score, then you're going to see those grades and there's not explanations. So behind the scenes, now you heard that many of our percentages that we're getting to our schools are not definitely ready for reading. Um, so with that background, the article also portrayed us with massive DNF schools when in fact the data uh, of our 50 transformation schools, which are the high-risk schools from high-risk marginalized communities, we actually grew 38% in English, math, and science. Now, 
anybody who does a report in, on any level of educational data, there's always room to, to either leave out, subtract, or add in. So this is not a criticism, but it needs to be shown to the public that there has been increases. And I know later we'll get into what we are doing about it. Yeah, I wanted to ask. I wanted to do ask you some questions about what you really thought was. You referenced this op-ed. Uh, this op-ed came to Creative Loafing Tampa Bay uh, this week. Um, it'll, it's online right now. We'll, it's linked on the WMNF website, and, and we'll run it in print next Thursday. Um, inside that op-ed, you talked about something called um, kids being reading ready. Um, wh- what does it mean when we talk about kids entering elementary schools being reading ready when they get there? That's a very, uh, very important question because we don't expect kids to come to kindergarten and they're reading because that's not, look, when we grew up, we didn't necessarily go our first day in kindergarten to read, but we did have an an acquisition of the sounds, the sight words, the phonics, um, and the enunciation. We did come in with that and we came in with numeracy, numbers, the idea of one versus 20. I mean, there's basic skills that we came to school with. Did our parents read to you, each of you? Most likely, because you're shaking your heads. Well, we don't have that going on. I, I, I I asked a class of students just the other day, how many of you uh, have uh, reading time at home where your parents actually read to you? There was not a single student in a class of about 25 that uh, raised their hand. How old are these my, kids? They are, uh, third, second, and third graders. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's remarkable. Um, remarkable. How does it, I mean, I, we know how that happens, obviously. Um, by the way, if you're are just we, joining... I mean, oh, what is it, though? Are we pressed for time? Like, where are parents right now? I mean, now? I think some, are, some houses don't even have parents in a way. Some of them work all day long. I also uh, think we entertain our kids by handing them a device. We, we do. We do. Uh, yeah, we do a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. By the way, there's proposed legislation about dealing with that, uh, I saw in Tallahassee, about school children with uh, devices. Have you seen that? Oh, I'm very much yeah. involved with that okay. uh, as it relates to social media, what uh-huh. the kids are seeing. Um, and if you want me to jump to your point, sure. that's the yeah. big yeah. point. That's actually the white elephant in the room. You know, where are the parents? And and, and Ray, you're right. There, Some are working two or three jobs um, and they're spread thin. But now that this data is coming out and it will be more and more, not only in Hillsborough, but other counties, parents... They, the, we're addressing them in Hillsborough directly. We're actually targeting parents with a roadmap principals have, teachers directing the parents. This, you know, Johnny is not able to obtain, uh, able to complete a complete sentence in an articulate way. And Johnny's in third grade. Now, some of you and all of us know by now, if you don't pass the test in third grade, you are left behind. Mm-hmm. And then there's other huge um, repercussions from that. Let me ask. I to tell our listeners yeah. again, we're speaking with Hillsborough County School Board Member Lynn Gray here on WMNF. And we have a few minutes here Great. before Let's, she's gone. If you want to contribute to the conversation, 813-239-9663. And a couple of messages I want to transfer over that uh, listeners have been saying here. Uh, let's see. One person writes here. Uh, this is I want to encourage families of elementary school teachers to check out the new World's 
New World is a reading program. It's a free in. book delivery program for kids who are not reading at grade level. Uh, let's see here. Uh, David writes in, what does your, uh, uh, our guest think about DeSantis' vindictive campaign against teachers' unions? I think it's shameful that teachers can no longer get their union dues deducted from their paychecks, but police and firefighters can? That's ridiculous. No wonder why teachers are leaving the profession. What, any thoughts about that? Uh, do you want, do you want a sidebar right? on that real quick? Yeah, I, I'm, I'll jump on, uh, for sure, the unions. Uh, <clears throat> what's going on with uh, the uh, let's just say the advocates um, are made up of teachers that belong to a union. And when you look at the world today and all the litigation being sued for every little thing and, and you know, the culture wars with pronouns, I mean, it's unlimited that one of the benefits of belonging to a union, this is why I joined, uh, was the legitimate value of being represented by an attorney. Um, and I hate to put, say it that way, but right now our unions are very supportive of the teachers. Uh, it's holding, it's the glue that's holding the, <laughs> a lot of them together. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think you, you can separate unions, uh, probably because my grandfather worked in New York. Uh, that's hugely a uh, union state. But a teacher's union is very personable and very involved with teachers' professional growth. And they're, you know, it's a support system. And Mitch, I can't see the call. So if, if they come in, definitely um, yeah, uh, let yeah, us know. You know. I know Irene's in there busy yeah. screening them. Um, and I'll sneak in a question here in between um, some of those calls. So the reporting, the Times reporting on the 32 schools with the D's and F's um, in, the, in the district notes that the figures do not include privately managed charters. Um, that part stood out to me. Are, are, you know, you have a deep relationship with this reporter. I'm sure you've been on the school board for eight years. I think she's been covering education much, much longer uh, than that. Are you privy to why uh, there wasn't any talk about uh, the privately managed charters? Are those schools, uh, which I presume receive some level of public funds to some degree, are they not subject to the same testing? Well, we do have public <laughs> charter schools, and you're right. We should have the accountability systems um, of the testing scores, uh, the discipline scores, the free and reduced lunch, um, all the demographic. Um, but right now, the reality is we don't have, they don't have that reporting system to really show us the amount of D's and F's. We just don't have it. We had uh, two years ago, we would be by our charter school office. We have one housed right in our main office. We would check on charter schools just like any other evaluation four times a year. We had a representative uh, who rallied and super well got, got it passed. No more can we, our office, Hillsborough County Public School, check on charter schools in terms of academics, discipline, any of the measures, fiscal accountability, you can do it one time a year. And so your answer, the question is, we don't know. We don't know. Hmm. Uh, Remember, Gray, if I could uh, bring this up, I, going back to the Tampa Bay Times story back in December, Van Ayers, of course, who's your new superintendent, relatively new. I guess he's been on the job for a while now. Um, he he um, confronted this, this issue you know, straight on. He said, quote, 
Were we as prepared as other districts across the state? Was our staff prepared enough to teach the standards as needed? Did our curriculum match? Were our instructional staff prepared at the level we should have been prepared them to be? As you look at the numbers, numbers don't lie. They are what they are. He called them unacceptable. They are unacceptable, Uh, and and it is a wake-up call, and it is a need for continuing conversations for years to come. The... There is no excuse that you can say to any parent why this is, there's any uh, silver lining to this cloud. There is uh, a lot now that has changed. We're doing the science of reading. And of course, this might sound glamorous, but it's just a deep dive into phonics and a deep dive into the pre-K kids before they come to kindergarten. There is a huge another deep dive into the principal being more involved with their PTA per school site where laser focus or family and community engagement is the headlights are right on the parents. Um, We are doing intensive remedial uh, reading camps, not only on weekends, but during the summer. So, um, you know, what are we doing about why didn't we do this before? I mean, and I would have said we have been. We've been working very diligently. But the reality is we did have COVID. We have huge absences. We have over uh, 350 bus drivers missing per day. Schools, many of the students are not getting to school till after first period. So they might miss algebra, miss a core class. There are a tremendous amount of fundamental and fiscal realities versus some of our other counterparts, other counties. Still, you know, can the teachers work harder? Well, we're short 300-and-something mm. teachers. Yeah. Uh, and then you have, on top of that, well, there's a lot on yeah. top of that. Yeah, sure. And there's also been an erosion, right, of students, not just in Hillsborough, but so throughout the country post-COVID of students who— didn't return back to the classroom. It's correct. Yeah. And there's the $8,000. Well, you know, but that's that's not really harboring. We don't, we're not having less students in public schools because of the House Bill 1. Not yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm not even going to... The voucher bill. Yeah. The voucher bill. But Vouchers for everybody, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, no child left behind. <laughs> you want a voucher? A yeah. voucher for you. A voucher, you know, it's an <laughs> Oprah thing here. Yeah. I think um, we, are, we are losing key... Motivators for kids, social workers, school psychologists. Um, we have those are getting $6,000 more in Pasco and Pinellas. They are leaving us. Teachers are leaving us. There's a differential between three to $30,000. How significant was losing that tax last year? Very significant. Now, <clears throat> we can argue. Could, could you get it. our listeners up to speed a little bit on, on oh, right. Well, uh, right, right, right. There was a uh, ballot measure. Was it in August or November? I forget now. Uh, oh, golly. Um, yeah, I think it was in November. Okay, yeah. right. That would, And what was that, um, that, that, t- that tax? Um, and you guys did have a successful tax in 2018. Right. Right. So you were going back to the well, though, like PASCO did as well, and, and theirs did pass. It was very very close, I believe, in 2022. Yeah. Um, well, we had uh, four board members vote uh, against it. Um, yeah. And the Tampa Bay Times also. Right. Uh, that like, was crucial. That editorial came out against and, it. And the unions. There's all kinds of yeah. uh, reasons behind it. But I, my rationale to the previous superintendent 
when you ask the public for money, you have to keep it succinct and directly what will affect them, mm-hmm. their, their immediate effect, effect. And one one thing that we all know, and we all have a teacher that we love, is they want the teachers taken care of. So when you limit this just toward the teachers, I think the success will be had. Mm-hmm. But we have, yeah, go okay, ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, there, there is a golf. And if you're just joining us, uh, the voice you're hearing is Lynn Gray, um, eight years of service on the Hillsborough County School Board. We're discussing data released last month by the Florida Department of Ed- Education that shows that Hillsborough County schools um, have more D and F graded schools uh, than any other state. And we're talking about some of the realities. That yeah, and raise a couple of people have written in to us. Okay. Uh, let's read those text messages here. Uh, one person says, referring to the time story uh, about the most D and F schools. But um, let's see. This person writes, but they are the third largest school district in the state. I would be interested in the percentage of failing schools per district. It would be more apples to apples. Yeah, I think that would be a very good uh, way of comparing. But I also think that the charter school industry needs to be in there as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because they are public charter schools. Right. And uh, the public, is that's their tax dollars. They should They should know. Every one of you all should know what's going on within the charter schools. If I could pivot, for, I'm sorry, Ray, just for a moment, uh, Gray, uh, in terms of, uh, we talked about this on this, on this uh, show the last year, the, the culture wars that have really kind of emerged at the school board districts post-COVID. What's that, have you, has it been intense for you at all there? I mean, I've been really following what's going on at the Hillsborough County School Board meetings. I know over in Pinellas, they've been quite volatile at times. Uh, the Moms for Liberty group have been pr- very prominent there. What's the situation over you in are Hillsborough up for County? You are election, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you. Um, we have had groups. Uh, they have had, uh, they arrive in buses. Um, they go to different school board members, uh, meetings, excuse me, and they address the school board members. Um, and there is a common theme uh, of the pornography, um, yet I am on the, uh, I have my own um, committee that does deep dives into how pornography and how books and how social media affect a child's learning and affect their trepidations for the human traffickers, et cetera. Having said that, I mean, I'm very, uh, with that part, that voyeurism type of of concern, Mm -hmm. but I'm also a teacher of the Holocaust, and I've taught that six-week course in my See, that was in my ninth grade uh, class, not not when I was at Jesuit. Um, and what happens is when you start burning books or uh, not allowing freedom to read, right? You're letting the child and the and or later the student, adult student, you're subtracting their thoughts. You're subtracting the information. You're limiting their entire wealth of knowledge. It's very dangerous. Once you start something like that, and I don't agree with a lot of these books because you just hear, heard me, a lot of them, you know, to me, they're off the top. I mean, yeah. you and I never had this. But letting that start, that process of banning books is, is very, very worrisome. I wonder, uh, you talked about the three tenets of, uh, you know, being ready for school, and one of them was an effective teacher. 
Uh, it's been my experience, especially in some of these transitional schools uh, in in Tampa, that a teacher, even if she uh, or he might be effective, they have students who speak two or three languages besides English in the classroom. And then the teacher is forced not only to, to deliver the instruction in English, but then to ask the English students to sit tight for one second while they figure out ways. And sometimes it's using a watch that interprets like Google Translate or sometimes it's typing it into a keyboard so that the translation service might be through the computer, but so they can tell the other students who might speak Spanish or Creole the instruction that they just delivered to the to the English speakers. Uh, it's, there's a breakdown in communication, and it causes all sorts of frustrations for even effective teachers in this classroom. How are these classrooms supposed to be managed when you have two and three different languages spoken, spoken in the classroom? And that's a huge question, and it's one of the biggest uh, challenges we face. And, and the new the new teacher uh, should that teacher have Hispanic the, the knowledge of Spanish at least. Um, and right now, it's kind of like groveling finding a student who understands the language, helping you help Jonah, you help Mary, you know, to get by and. That, well, that happens a lot, where, where a student is actually asked to do the interpretation for right. their friend. And we have right now, and this is Superintendent Van Ayers, he's being challenged to find, and we must hire, we have to champion the Hispanic. Uh, over 49% of our students will be from Hispanic families. Mm -hmm. That's the reality. Are we ready? And, Are, and uh, yeah. Not to cut you off, in 30 seconds, if you could answer this question as we round to the end of the show, what do you say to a parent listening to this, reading these reports, maybe with a four-year-old, maybe thinking about trying to get their child into the Hillsborough school system? Uh, what do you tell that parent, and what can that parent do to help uh, your that kid be more prepared when they arrive? Can you answer that in 30 seconds? I can. Okay. Uh, well, you know, as a parent, um, finding the books that the child likes to read and read and have, you know, make it a game. Uh and every night, it should have a routine, by the way. Parents usually find that the child relaxes right before bed reading a story, but also having the books relate to what the child is interested in. And that's usually a winner. It's not going to take long. Once the child becomes a reader, yeah. they, they will even want more and more books. It's just getting them right to on. read. Lynn Gray, um, Hillsborough County School Board member, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Representative Lindsey Cross, thank you for being here at the top of the show. Uh, Bev Capshaw is here um, instead of Joe Ellen uh, for uh, Art in Your Ear. She's got a pot talk, pottery that is, um, coming up. On behalf of Ben Montgomery, Mitch Perry, Skip Sassy on the board, and my friend Irene on the phones, thank you so much for listening. This has been The Skinny on WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned here for five minutes of NPR News. Thank you.